Hello, I'm Robert Riggs. In the previous episode, I interviewed the negotiator for the Dallas SWAT team, who gave me the inside story about the mass killer who ambushed Dallas officers during a Black Lives Matter protest. Some of you in our true crime community have asked to learn more about the purpose of SWAT teams. SWAT stands for Special Weapons and Tactics. It's a highly trained elite unit selected from rank-and-file officers who apply. In our episode about the Uvalde school shooting, you heard how a SWAT team from the Border Patrol finally stepped in and ended the mass shooting. SWAT teams grew out of the mass shooting at the University of Texas Tower in Austin a half century ago. In 96 minutes, Charles Whitman, an architectural engineering student, cut down nearly 50 people with 150 rifle shots from the 30th floor observation deck on August 1st, 1966. From his perch there, 300 feet above the campus, he methodically picked off victims as far as five blocks away. Police were outgunned and did not have protective gear to make a quick assault. You can learn more about the incident and how it influenced policing in our episode with Gary Laverne, the author of A Sniper in the Tower, The Charles Whitman Murders. I have placed links in the show notes to black and white film footage from the shooting and a video of Gary following the sniper's trail to the top of the UT Tower. If SWAT teams had existed back then, that's who would have responded. I asked retired Dallas Police Lieutenant Bob Owens to explain the role of SWAT teams. Owens is a 40-year veteran of the Dallas Police Department. Now, Bob, you spent most of your career, at least half of your career, in SWAT. Tell our listeners, what what is SWAT? We all know it stands for Special Weapons and Tactics, but what's their primary mission? Uh, the mission of SWAT team, uh, first of all, we have a full-time Dallas. We have a full-time SWAT team, so that's pretty much all they do. The mission of the SWAT team in no particular order is to handle uh, barricaded persons, hostage situations, hazardous warrants, drug warrants, murder suspects, things like that. Uh, they also are uh, involved in pretty much any big operation that the, the city might have, but those are the main things they do. And like any SWAT team, uh, most time is spent on drug warrants. Well, the public sees the officers uh, with their heavy armored vest, helmets, shields, and armored vehicle, uh, and it gives the impression that, oh, they're ready to go in shooting. What is the real case? Why all the gear, protective gear? Just that, to protect the officers from getting hurt. Uh, generally, when they go in, it's a it's a pretty hazardous situation. Uh, they generally know the SWAT's coming, so the, the gear is to protect the officers from having to use force, and if they do or if they get shot at that they they won't be shot or killed so you ran the training for the Dallas Police Department what all does that encompass well there's basically two parts of training there's uh, rookie training which is uh, basic training it's called and then in service training i ran both at one time or another uh, basic training is the recruits and you take them it's about a 9 month course for recruits, you take them off the street, uh, brand new, first day on the job, all the way to through all the classes, all the training, and then you release them to field training. And then in service, 
is everything else but rookie training. So it's the the training that officers get after they're out of the academy. So every two years, the state mandates 40 hours of training for each Texas peace officer. And in-service does that. They also run the range. So they do the qualifications, firearms training, uh, you know, all the things you think about, tasers, firearms, patrol rifle, uh, and then classroom stuff. There's a lot of classroom training, uh, every every type. So those are basically the, the two types. And I was a basic training for about three years, and I was in in-service training for about two years. What What's the uh, kind of principal competency and an emotional state for a SWAT commander and a SWAT officer? Emotional state, the thing I always liked was, you know, obviously people can think on their feet and they can they can make good decisions under stress. That's the most important thing, both for the commander and, and the officer. You know, obviously the commander, you have a little more time to think and you have people advising you. You're generally in a command post. The officer's not. Yeah. You know, he's inside the residence or inside the target location. And, uh, you know, he... He doesn't have anybody helping him. He's got to make that quick decision. That's what I always look for. Somebody can make a good, critical decision under th- stress. And SWAT team members in, are considered the the elite members of the police force. What makes them different? Uh, no, be honest with you, nothing really. It's the, the training they receive. They're taken. Uh, you have. They're taken off the street in mostly in patrol, but in other jobs in. Uh, uh, the police department. Anybody can apply for SWAT as long as you're in Dallas. You have to be a senior corporal. You apply, and then you go through an interview process and a, a basic SWAT school, and they they judge how you do those things, how you make critical decisions, your physical fitness, and uh, your shooting, all those things. And then you, once you get over there, then you train. Every week, pretty much every week. So it's they get a heck of a lot more training. And that's, you know, that's why they're generally better at handling these situations is because they receive the training. But the basic SWAT officer comes from the same place everyone else does, you know, through the academy, through field training, through patrol, and then either patrol or another assignment. So when you were called in on a barricaded suspect or someone being held hostage and all, there's no rush to go in. It's about negotiations. Generally, it, it depends. You know, a barricaded the difference between a barricaded person and a hostage situation is hostages. A barricaded person is a person by themselves. Uh, they're holding, basically holding themselves hostage, and there's no hostage to worry about. Uh, so. Those were always easier operations because uh, it leaves uh, lots of opportunities for negotiations. Hostage rescue, hostage situations, which a true hostage situation is pretty rare, really is. Uh, those things, you you obviously negotiate your way out. Uh, and Until the hostages are released or the suspect comes out, you pretty much negotiate unless— you feel a compelling threat to that hostage, and you believe the person's going to 
carry out the threat to kill the hostage. They generally realize the reason the police are outside and not trying to come in is because of the hostage. So if if they attempt to hurt the hostage, kill the hostage, uh, then SWAT's going to make entry to save anybody else or yeah. save that hostage from bleeding to death. But is the bulk of the work serving high-risk warrants and, you know, after violent fugitives and drug searches, that kind of thing? Explain. Yeah, it is uh, because barricaded person hostage situations don't happen that often. Drug warrants are happen all the time, every day. Uh, narcotics runs the majority of drug warrants, but the 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 ones that are really bar- – the doors are barricaded – you know, there's a propensity for violence. Those are the ones that go to SWAT. So, you know, I had friends all over the country in different SWAT teams, and it was the same way. You know, I had several friends in, in New York City and uh, the emergency services unit. And that's what they did the majority of the time was run drug warrants. So. Is it a reflection of just how well-armed the big drug trafficking organizations had become? Yeah. And they also, they'll barricade their do- their drug houses to slow you down so they can, you know, they do it for two reasons. Slow the police down so they can flush the drugs and get rid of it. And then also to prevent another drug dealer from breaking in and stealing their drugs. Does the flushing the drugs really work? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it works. I mean, it yeah. depends how much you have, obviously. You know, if they have hundreds of pounds of marijuana, you're not too concerned about it. But uh, a small drug house that sells crack cocaine, mm-hmm. yeah, they can flush one one flush. Now, you were with SWAT when they we had that very famous, very popular television show, Dallas SWAT. What was that like? Uh, it was, I, I actually got that started. I, uh, I left after episode two. I was on episode one, episode two, and then I got transferred to the police academy, the basic training unit. So what was it like? It was, uh, I think if they had to do it over again, they wouldn't do it. Uh, it was it was a situation where everybody wanted their 15 minutes of fame, all the SWAT officers I'm talking yes. about. Yes. And it created, it created some tension when inside the unit. Well, was there a kind of an extra level of pressure in that, you're always on camera. You're, ever, you know, you're being scrutinized all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there was because they, they would, and they actually had a crew. You know, they they would have like three three person yeah. crew going out with you. So, you know, you had to make allowance for them and try to get them in a place where they could get a sh- good shot, but yeah. still keep them safe as possible. Let me take you back into your career. What are, what are some of the? Tell us about some of the most interesting SWAT operations you're involved in. Well, when I first started in SWAT, I was an officer in in the uh, 70s. Well, about dating yourself. I always told people I was I was in SWAT in the 70s, 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s. I, I did leave sometimes and come back. I got promoted. In Dallas, when you get promoted, you are transferred out or whatever, generally mm-hmm. whatever unit you're in. And so I was an officer being swatted. Back then, we they had a lot of problems with serial rapists, I don't, you know, this, uh, again, back in the day. But uh, the friendly rapist, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he was caught by a SWAT officer. No, tell us the story. Well, it was, uh, they, they needed bodies to uh, 
saturate areas where the rapists were were uh, hitting. And so they used SWAT officers and they put them plain clothes and they would saturate these areas, apartment complexes mainly, looking for the suspects, you know. And why was he called the friendly rapist? That was, they later, I think the the uh, detectives uh, coined that phrase. He actually said to his victims, or at least in one occasion, uh, don't don't be scared. I'm your I'm just your friendly rapist. Oh, said that to a victim. Yeah, and but he uh, I don't know how many victims he had, but it's quite a few. Uh, and it was a SWAT officer that caught him. Later became a, a sergeant in the unit, and he's long since retired. And then while I was there, that was before I got there. I was still in patrol. While I was there, they had another rapist called the. Uh, they always have a nickname, you know, it was either the jumper cable rapist mm-hmm. or the 45 caliber rapist. Mm-hmm. And the jumper cable was because he, uh, he is asking women for a jump. His car was stopped. He'd have the hood up and he had a pair of jumper cable. Can I, would you jump me off? And then he also had a 45 pistol that he used. And we did the same thing, uh, with the, Jumper cable rapist. We were saturation, uh, doing saturation patrol around, oh, I guess it was uh, University in Greenville area, those apartments. And we got a call on a suspicious person. I went over there with my partner, and the guy took off running. Uh, a sergeant had confronted him. He took off running. And so he, we fanned out and tried to find him. He was, he was lost, and I found him sitting on the uh, balcony of apartment con- apartment uh, front door a short time later. So so we, SWAT basically got the first, the, the two major rapists that were big in the news back in the day. And then, uh, and then I, I went, I got promoted and I went back to SWAT as a sergeant later. And uh, we had, I, I, you know, we did the Republican National Convention. I guess that might be thing, a thing mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, President Reagan and uh, Vice President Bush and my squad had President or Vice President Bush's motorcade. And he was here in Dallas for about a week and we drove him around town. That was kind of, I guess that was the big, uh, big event when I was sergeant. Several barricaded persons, that, you yeah. know, fairly routine things. And then uh, as a lieutenant, we had a hostage situation where uh, a man broke into his his ex-wife and her three kids were staying with the new boyfriend, and the old the husband breaks in and uh, kills a guy sleeping on his couch, innocent bystander, goes in the bedroom, kills the boyfriend, and uh, then brings the girls, the three girls and the wife, into the bedroom and barricades himself. Patrol gets there, and they're going to generally when patrol gets there, they hold the scene until SWAT gets there. So we got a phone call, you know, this is uh, probably one o'clock in the morning and we were being called from home. We get a phone call. Hey, come on out. We got a barricaded person. Well, shortly after that, the patrol officers heard the suspect choking one of the children, thought he was killing him. So they kicked the door in and they had absolutely no, no, no uh, shield, no protection. Yeah, patrol rifle, no protection. They had a shotgun and a bunch, of, bunch of courage. Did they have vests in those days? They had soft vests. Okay, yeah. and he shot them all. They, 
I was talking to the sergeant later. It was a sergeant, two officers. And he said, you know, he was in the corner sitting down with the kids all around him with that shotgun pointed at us. And they couldn't, they couldn't fire, obviously, for mm-hmm. uh, worried about hitting the kids. And he started shooting, and he shot all three of them. And they bailed out of the room. And they all, they all live. They're, you know, mostly shot in the hands and arms. We get there, and we negotiate all night, and we get hostage one out, hostage two out. The, or the wife, I guess, came out first, and then the oldest daughter, the middle daughter. And then about, it took about three hours to get the littlest, the young daughter. We thought he was going to for sure kill her. And finally she comes out. And then when the, the team went in to get him, he pointed a shotgun at him and he got killed. And the, uh, one of the SWAT officers got wounded. So that was, that was probably the most significant uh, hostage situation I was involved in the whole time. In a moment, we will return to the rest of the story about that hostage standoff. If you like our episodes, please give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and join our true crime community to get crime news and tips at our website, truecrimereporter.com. Every page features red boxes where you can join up. Did you ever go to negotiator school? Because I'm curious, you know, for that going over that period of time, what, why did he let him go? What did they say to him? You know, the funny thing about him was this was his third time as a barricaded person. It was, and it was funny because one of the SWAT officers, he actually shot two of my guys, but he shot one on the, in a shield mm-hmm. and he wasn't hurt. And he shot another one on the vest of, Shotgun pellet hit him in the vest. Uh, it was their first barricaded person, and it was his third. So he he kind of knew the he knew the drill, but uh, they just appealed to his you know as a father. And uh, later we found his his truck, and the, the detectives found his pickup in the parking lot, and he had a picture of his his wife and kids, and he had an X over their uh, over their faces. So but, he had planned to kill them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what else? You know, he's in there and he's not trying to leave. You know, he stayed. And he'd already killed two people and shot three cops, three patrol officers. And then he shot at us and, and you know, didn't hurt, but he shot at two of us. So I, I think he was just, you know, he just needed the right coaxing. Uh, to and I had an excellent negotiator. Did a you know he was he was one of the ones I always look for on a hostage situation. Is where's Raul at? If he's around, I want him mm-hmm. to negotiate because mm-hmm. he did. He always did an excellent job, and he could tell you by listening to the suspect. You know, he's not going to hurt the hostage, or you better get in there. He's going to hurt somebody because he could he could tell because he'd been at it so long. And so, uh, you know, he he said that. He said at the end, you know, you know, he's gonna he's not coming out, you know, without a fight. But he let them all go, so none of the hostages were hurt mm-hmm. except for the the initial entry into the place. Uh, the two were dead, and they stayed in there. You know, we we were in the living room, 
And that's where the first man was mm-hmm. killed, and mm-hmm. he we couldn't move him. And then the boyfriend was in the bedroom with the hostages the whole time. You know, it was about it took about oh, close to ten hours. You know, from the time of the shooting and time uh, we were done. Um, another case that that it's kind of hard to get one more graphic and serious than that. Yeah, I, I guess the biggest thing was the. Uh, when crack cocaine first hit Dallas, yes, you know, the, and that year would would this be the seventies or eighties? Eighties, yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, we were it, it was crazy. We were doing uh, way too many warrants a day, uh, and the, the the officers were just wore out. I remember I was at a DEA school, and I came back to town. They started Operation Clean, if you recall that, mm-hmm. where. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to hit every drug house in, in Dallas. Well, at the time, the crack was being run by Jamaicans. And Jamaicans are, uh, they do t- they're very violent and they barricade their doors. Just very, they very ingenious about how they barricade the doors. So it takes a lot. Back then, we didn't do explosive breaching. We used a battering ram. And it would take, you know, 10, 15, 20 hits on a door to get the door open because the way they barricaded them. So it's very dangerous. And again, by the time you get in there, drugs are gone. But we ran, you know, 100 warrants a week, I'd say, on two shifts. Mm-hmm. We had two shifts back then. And we, we'd run 100 warrants a week. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was a long time like that and trying to, kind of corral the the violence of the uh, crack cocaine. So I arrived in Dallas and television news from New York City uh, at that time and remembered actually doing Mm ride-alongs with SWAT. And it was nonstop. And the other thing that struck me was the violence of the Jamaicans. Uh, And I do remember uh, whoever that would get crossways with them and I remember there was a task force, ATF and others working the task force and seeing their their crime books. And you would see pictures of their victims seated at tables, typically, and their hands would be the palms down on the table. And they would have taken a nail gun and nail their hands to the table. Did you see some of that? Oh, um, yeah. 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 So just describe how violent. I mean, they seem to be at another level of violence than the, the other drug gangs in the city. Yeah, there, there were, they were a lot more likely to shoot. You know, and think about that. Why, you know, if you know it's the police and, and you're inside your house and, you, you know, you should know that you're surrounded. So what it, what's the end result if you start shooting, you know, a, a group of 10 people trying to come, heavily armed people come in your house? It's, it's not going to end good for you but they you know they were they would shoot they would shoot a lot more uh frequently than you know the the normal drug dealers we we dealt with because they realized what it was you know hey i'll go to jail and i may have to go to prison but i'll get out you know and i'll be back doing this again but if i you know i shoot it out i may good chance i'm gonna die Mm -hmm. and what's for what you know one one thing about Operation Clean, uh, when I came back from uh, uh, Quantico from DEA school, uh, that I go out with with the teams and they say, "Okay, we're going to run 
and this was a day shift. We're going to run, I think, eight warrants. So we, what we do, we brief one, everybody get in the van, we drive out there, hit the place, and then we we get someplace away from We leave it for the detectives, and then we get someplace safe. We brief the second one. So we do this, and we're on the, we do the second, third warrant, I guess. We did three warrants. So we go to a fire station in West Dallas to do our briefing. And so I go, you know, I go in there and the SWAT guys are, you know, of course, they're wearing all their heavy gear. And I go into the uh, TV room, you know, the, the fireman's TV room where they're all their, their uh, chairs are. And uh, the SWAT guys are laying on the floor. They hadn't even taken their gear off. They just have them opened up and they're all asleep. And this is like noon. Mm-hmm. Been at work for two hours because they were so tired. And they each one of those doors, they had to hit nine or ten times. Yeah. yeah. And I went, I told my sergeant, I said, we're done. You know, we'll we'll try, we'll do this tomorrow. Because somebody get hurt if. Sure. They're, you know. they're, they were so tired. They're like, uh, they're like being in the military. You can fall asleep anywhere because they were just so tired. And they just got to work. We had another five warrants mm-hmm. to go. Mm-hmm. And they were. They're all suspected to be like this. And these were all, you know, we don't deal very much with high-level people. These are low-level sellers of drugs. So we're talking about minuscule amounts of drugs, so little that you can flush in one flush. And they do that on purpose because if they get raided by the police, they don't lose that much product. They lose a guy, but they got plenty of guys to sell. Well, I can remember on the ride-alongs that you would have the briefing and then they would roll out. But in those days, as I recall, they had uh, almost like Dodge vans, a plumber or somebody would use with a sliding door on the side. Everybody would come piling out. Yeah. Yeah. uh, We we had that van until we got in a chase with, uh, I don't know if it was that, that, uh, I don't even remember the semi-truck chase hostage situation the semi and and the the uh, there was a hostage in the, the semi cab, and they were following it in the van, and it just it conked out, and <laughs> it wouldn't start. So we finally got that van replaced. Generally, now they use the armored vehicles, which we didn't have back then. For uh, uh, so, if they do get fired, you know, the, the old van was just that an old van. With, uh, you know, if you get shot at, it's going right through both sides. Yes. This, if you're inside and you take fire, you're you're protected. So that's what they use now. Well, and then there's criticism that that reflects a militarization of the police. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I can understand that. And and it does, but it's, it's, uh, it's a safety issue. It's, uh, they're dealing with people that are militarized. They have weapons and they're not afraid to use them. And it's a, it's a thing to protect people, to protect the officers and protect the suspects yeah. too. I mean, think about it. If you drive up to a house and you're in a, a, a regular van, good thing about it is they don't know you're coming, but they kind of do because they know what that white van looks like. But, you know, if, if you take fire in that thing, it's, it's like Swiss cheese. It's, it's going right through both sides. So, you know, the, the armor cars, the, the, you could say that about a lot of the equipment, the helmets, the, uh, the flak jackets, the weapons. It, it's very much like the military. I used to say in the past, uh, we use military equipment 
for one reason. It was free. And we used to get it from the Army. We used to drive down to Fort Hood, and they'd mm-hmm. give us helmets. They'd give us gas masks. And the city didn't, the taxpayers didn't have to pay for it. Now they've got a lot better equipment that's made for police work. But what do I say to people who say that? I say, yeah, I can, I can understand you say that. But that's what it's for. It's protect the officers. Well, have you seen changes in crime that uh, affected changes in how SWAT operated? I, I guess the biggest thing was is just the the, the overabundance of uh, you know weapons, violence. You know, it's uh, they they have uh, they have evolved from. You know, when I started, we had revolvers and twelve gauge shotguns, pump shotguns. And now they have some, some pretty sophisticated equipment. They have a lot of uh, electronic things that uh, surveillance equipment so uh, that we never had. You know, we used to, and this is, this is old school stuff, you get the person on the phone, the negotiator would, and you'd already ask, you know, a family member, where are the phones at? You know, back when you had the landlines. Mm-hmm. Well, how long is your phone cord? Uh, it's six feet. Okay. I know he's in the kitchen and he's within six feet of the, you know, the kitchen counter. You know, now obviously with cell phones, you can't do that, but you have, you have electronic devices that let you see better into the location. You have uh, SWAT robots that uh, put a camera inside a location. So the, the equipment's gotten a lot better, a lot better than it was. Uh, you know, I, the tactical industry in the seventies just didn't exist. There wasn't any such a thing, and now it's huge as far as equipment uh, and, and primarily the electronics. I think has really has really uh, made it a lot safer for the officers. Owen says criminals armed with high-powered weapons started to outgun patrol officers who were the first responders. Owens established a patrol rifle program in Dallas. Officers that receive additional training are allowed to carry rifles in their vehicles. Critics have called the use of armored vehicles and shields the militarization of police. Owens says the first priority of SWAT is to peacefully end a standoff, but that officers have to remain safe to do that. We'll be back next week with another edition of True Crime Reporter that takes you inside the Yellow Crime Scene tape. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast, so please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.